Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Mm-hmm. True. We here. Yes. You ready? I am. It's Good. been kind of a long day, so I'm like a little bit... It's been a busy couple of weeks for summer. Yeah. I feel like we've had a lot of activities that we... Maybe we have always done busy things in summer, but since the pandemic, we just feel like we don't. <laughs> right. Like doing anything out of the house still right. to me feels a little bit strange. Mm-hmm. Just even just yeah. a little bit. Just a little bit. There's, yeah. a, there's a hint of it. Like I think we shouldn't be doing things. Right. But like here we are going out every single day of the week. Right. Just do something. Right. Yeah. So. It is. It is a little bit strange. So yeah, I am feeling a little bit floaty in the brain tonight. Mm. Fair. Yeah. How how about you? You feeling? Yeah, I feel a little bit floaty. I feel like like I can't believe yesterday was only one day ago. <laughs> True. You know, one of yeah. those kinds of feelings. Uh-huh. I'm like, I think about what I did yesterday and I'm like, that happened yesterday? You yeah. Know, one of those kinds of feelings. Totally. Oh, but no one is here to listen to us meander through our thoughts of Time and space. Strange, and, the passage of time. Yes. They are really <laughs> here to know. What are you drinking? Well, I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> I am here yet again with just a big old Starbucks water. Big old Starbucks water. Yep. What about you? That Trenta ice water. That's a venti, actually. Venti this is a venti. Ice water. Mm-hmm. Double osmosis filtrated. Whatever. Whatever it is. What do you have? I... Went for something a little bit more fun. I got the Simply Spiked Blueberry. Ooh. I haven't pulled one of these out in like 11 months. Ah. So Now's the time. I know. I was like, okay, it's it's summer. We were holding on to these in the event that they <laughs> <laughs> stopped selling them. We became doomsday preppers, but uh-huh. only of Simply Spiked Lemonades. <laughs> And uh, now that we've held on for a whole year and we could have continued buying them the whole time. Right. I feel like I understand the people who panic bought the toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic. (laughs) I still don't think it's cool, but I uh, understand it a little bit more because that's why I bought the (laughs) Simply Spiked. Oh no, they're going to run out. And then what will we do? (laughs) You got the big case in August thinking this will be the last one that I can buy. And in November, they were still selling them. (laughs) Learn from me. Yes. Well, do you have a feel-good fact for us this week, my love? I do. So sheep can recognize certain facial expressions, and they're most relaxed when they see a smile. Aww. They also have the ability to recognize upwards of 50 different human faces and can be clicker-trained like dogs. What? So yeah, huh. sheep are a lot smarter than they are traditionally given credit for. Yes, not quite so dumb as one would think. Yeah, very cute. That is very cute. I'm proud of each of them. All right, my love. What story do you have for us this week? Okay. On a dark November night in 1929 on the Isle of Iona off the western coast of Scotland, there was a knock at the door of the home of the Cameron family. During the summer months, the Cameron's home, the Trevor, was a popular guest house. But during the colder months on the aisle, it was just the family's home. Hmm. When Mrs. Cameron opened the door, a frail young woman in a black cloak asked if there were any available rooms where she could stay. This was highly unusual given the time of the year, but there was something very intriguing and almost sympathetic about the strange young woman at the door. Hmm. Mrs. Cameron welcomed her inside, and the woman went to sleep almost immediately. Over the next several days, the mystery surrounding the odd woman would only grow, and a darker mystery would soon unfold. This is the strange tale of Netta Fernario and her unsolved death. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Mm, Okay. All right, so I do have to start this off with a little clarification. Mm -hmm. This story does have a lot of inconsistencies, like with names, and certain details and things have been changed over the years. Like the family who owned the home, for example, is commonly called the McRae family, but they were actually a family with the last name of Cameron. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there are some certain details that I'll talk a little bit more in depth about kind of as they come. Mm -hmm. And I did feel like it's important to get that clarification out of the way because somebody who might be a little bit more familiar with this story might be like, hmm. That's not how I heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I... Really, really tried to sift through Mm -hmm. information, and I ended up landing on one that was 
somebody dedicated a lot of their life to make mm, sure they were getting okay. the most accurate oh, that's interesting. information possible. Yeah. And so I primarily used that yeah. for specific details. So I wanted to get that out of the way before we started. Sure. Yeah. And so with that out of the way, let's dive in. All right. This story begins with two adventurous souls who met and fell in love. Giuseppe Nicola Raimondo Fernario, which is a name, <laughs> was born in 1863 in Naples, which is in Italy. In his young adult life, Giuseppe followed in his own father's footsteps when he developed a passion for medicine, which he studied in Naples and in Rome. Hmm. He was a forerunner for malaria research at the time, and the only thing that he loved more than medicine was traveling. <laughs> During one of his many trips between universities, he met the woman that he would go on to marry, Nora Edith Ling. Uh, she was the daughter of a retired tea merchant, Ooh, which wow. sounds like really fancy. Yeah. In 1893, the pair married in a small London suburb, and the adventure only grew. The pair would travel the world together, focusing a lot of their time in Egypt, a place that had captured the heart of Giuseppe, who spent many long hours studying the rich history, specifically of Cairo. Hmm. It was there in 1897 where Nora would give birth to their daughter, wow. Marie Edith Emily Nora Fernario. Oh, which, wow. Okay. Yeah, that is a very, there's a lot of names there. <laughs> Okay, so a little clarity here. I've seen her referred to as Marie and as Nora during her childhood. Mm, okay. So I'm going to stick with calling her Nora when I'm talking about her younger years mm -hmm. because the book that I used referred to her by that name. Oh, okay. And sure. so I just decided to pick one and go with it. Yeah, that makes sense. So after Nora's birth, many great and wonderful plans were made about their future as a family of three. But sadly, this story doesn't end with love and adventure for the Frenarios. Oh, a year after Nora's birth, her mother passed away due to complications that she'd suffered during childbirth at the age of 33. Oh. So she was really, really young. Yeah. Giuseppe was crushed by his tremendous loss, but was not given much time to grieve as his important calling in the medical field remained firmly in place. Mm -hmm. So he left his baby daughter in the care of her maternal grandparents in England. Hmm. He continued his travels, spending most of his time in Italy, and he would visit his daughter in England from time to time. Nora's early childhood was spent in her grandparents' massive estate, free from the struggles of the working class at the time. Hmm. She was cared for primarily by her grandparents and her uncle Bertram whenever he was in town from one of his travels. Hmm. Marie received a private education in her home, and all was well until tragedy struck once again when her grandmother passed away when Nora was only 11, and then a year later, her grandfather also passed away. Oh, it's like a that's lot really of loss. Sad. Yeah. Like functionally, those were her parents for yeah. her whole childhood. Right. You know? Wow. Her dad was just this guy who would pop in from time to time. Right. You know, it's not like they were FaceTiming. Right. Right. You know? And even even at that young of age, letters isn't really like I'm sure it's somewhat meaningful. And they can um I think that they could capture photographs at that point in time, but even still, communication was so slow. Mm -hmm. at, in 1908 or whatever year that is. Right. So, yeah, I can't imagine that she had a great relationship with him. Yeah. Outside of just maybe longing for it, but she also had that fulfilled in her grandparents. Yeah, so, it sounds like they were really yeah. present. They also had some house staff that she was close with. Mm -hmm. So she was never really like alone, which is good, but I just feel like that's a lot of loss for a really little yeah, for a human little to have to go yeah. through. So when both grandparents had passed away, it was the assumption that they would pass on their wealth and their entire tea empire onto their two living sons. But much to everyone's shock, when the family's lawyer came to settle the estate, it was discovered that the entirety of their wealth and all of their belongings were passed on to little Nora upon trust. Oh, wow. Right. So that means upon trust just means that she could access the money when she turned 18 mm -hmm. in the amount of 12,000 pounds, which is somewhere around 1.5 million pounds today or <laughs> 1.9 million U.S. dollars. Wow. That's a lot a of millionaire money. as a 12 year old. Right. That's she couldn't crazy. access it at that time. True. But even still, it was waiting for her. Right. She wow. would be placed in the care of her uncle Bertram, who would manage the logistics of the tea business and would raise his niece as his own. Giuseppe would still come to visit Nora when he could, and their relationship did grow and improve a little bit over the years. But being a preteen with that much grief to attempt to navigate, mm -hmm. I mean, that had to have been so hard. Yeah. You know, and we look oh. at resources for grief and resources for this sort of situation today, mm -hmm. and just head and shoulders right. above what was available at this time. Yeah. It was still even, hard. And still hard. Yeah. Exactly. So, I don't know. I just feel really bad for little mm -hmm. Nora. 
A year later, she was sent to a boarding school for girls where she received a solid education and grew into a skilled and passionate writer. (laughs) For the next several years, there's pretty much no information about her life due to the lack of documentation and archived info throughout the course of the First World War. Oh, okay. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I guess like certain documents and certain types of information like weren't routinely being written down and archived during this yeah. time in the same way. Yeah. There was a little bit of uh, an important thing happening in history that would probably kind of. precedent. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So she wrapped up her education and once she turned 18 in 1915, she purchased a property in London and received her official certificate of citizenship in the UK in 1922 which was a really big deal at the time because only the super wealthy and affluent could afford to do that. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Yes, and so she was technically half Italian, half English, but she was born in Egypt. So it's like a very complicated thing. (laughs) Yes, on top of it not being a common thing to do at the time. Yeah. It was also just like a little bit complicated. Yeah. Around this same time, Nora embraced a more eccentric lifestyle. Shortly after receiving her citizenship, Nora embarked on a journey that would open up a Pandora's box that she wouldn't realize the depths of until it was far too late. Hmm. Nora hit a point where she was truly just trying to discover herself for the first time, like for real. Yeah. She changed her name to Netta and began dressing as a sort of like artsy bohemian free spirit. (laughs) Yeah. Like bright colors, long cloaks, layered jewelry. Yeah. She would wear her long, dark hair in braids. And she also began exploring meetings held by the Science, Arts, and Crafts Society, Hmm. which is a group that was kind of like a gateway group for her to go on and join another group later. Mm, Okay. Complicated. Okay, foreshadowing. So it's like a, yeah, it's kind (laughs) of a not-so-secret secret secret society. Mm -hmm. People know that it exists, but they don't quite know what goes on there. Sure. And it was this group, the Science, Arts, and Crafts Society, that kind of opened her eyes to Hmm. what resources might be out there for her to learn certain things. Interesting. Yeah. Make a little bit of sense. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So she's going down a very, uh, and I don't mean this to sound like dismissive or derogatory if that comes across this way, but she's basically doing what would be a hippie of the time. Kind of. That you're just kind of going down a path of like, Free will, exploration, self-discovery. Right. Well, and her grandparents, I didn't write about this, but her grandparents were super Protestant Mm. and they were really, they were really sweet and kind, but it was actually like contingent in her upon trust thing Mm. that she would stay in the faith and she would not leave England and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, wow. So it also seems like it's like a little bit of rebellion. Yeah. But like, yeah, mostly harmless rebellion on the surface, you know? Yeah, just one of those things that's like, I want to do what makes me feel good or what. I want to see what's out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's even better way of putting it than I was. But mm-hmm. Just wanting to see the world and explore. Well, you know those artsy and creative mm-hmm. types. I uh, mean, yes, I do. Yes, you do. <laughs> and there's just something about getting to see mm-hmm. adventure. Something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and her parents were like that. Exactly. That's yeah. what I was just about to say. So it's in her DNA. Yeah, this isn't new. So, okay. Totally. So, given the time frame we're talking about, it's important to know that there was a massive upswing in overall interest in the occult and occultic practices across London and beyond. Hmm. Spiritualism was a huge deal in London in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Alternative belief systems were being embraced to a degree very unique to the time period, given the way that science was proving to be a worthy method of observing the world hmm. and figuring out how it works. Yeah. And like that was becoming more widely accepted. That we can, we can, we can know. Yeah. This opened up the doors for more questions to be asked and for worldviews to kind of blend and form new ones. Mm-hmm. Science blended with multiple religions and formed new systems of belief. Pseudoscience blended with long-beloved doctrine and theology, and thus, spiritualism blossomed into the hot new way to view <laughs> yourself and the world, with both the visible and invisible aspects taken into account and seen as equally valuable. Hmm. For like, yeah, yeah. Like at large for one of the first times in history. So it was like wow. a really big deal. It's really interesting. And through this cultural thirst for knowledge and unprecedented openness, groups like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn were born. So mm. that was also a lot of syllables I said in a row. Yes. 
So <laughs> it's a very interesting name of anything. Okay. Yes. So the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, or just the Golden Dawn, was founded in 1888 by a man named Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers, a British Freemason and occultist. Hmm. In the early stages of forming the Golden Dawn, Samuel met a woman by the name of Moina, Moina, I'm going to say, okay. Berkson. She was a young, beautiful woman who was also a self-proclaimed clairvoyant. Hmm. The two would get married in 1890 and the group would continue to grow. As far as the beliefs of the group, they blended Christianity, paganism, astrology, alchemy, Freemasonry, and Egyptian mysticism. Oh, wow. Like many things. They basically kind (laughs) of took their favorite ideas from several major worldviews, along with some pseudoscience, Uh along with some specific science. Yes. Like old school mythology, all that kind of stuff, and and blended it together. Hmm. Wow. While the group was only spread via word of mouth, it grew to hundreds of very enthusiastic members who were taught that through the use of natural magic, they could connect with the unseen spiritual realm. Hmm. There was a sort of track that members would follow, beginning first with the outer order where members would be trained in the basics of the group. Things like learning how to practice tarot, divination, and astrology. All members were encouraged to focus deeply on personal spiritual development, and once all elements of the outer order were mastered, they could advance to the inner order, where they would learn more complex practices such as astral projection and alchemy. Oh my gosh. Those are some crazy practices to be doing, especially at this time in history. I know. like Just casually. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So it didn't operate for super long, like as the Golden Dawn, and Mm. it would, but it would like, despite that kind of be the one that stood above the rest of the other societies that were similar. Oh, and it would also splinter off into several offshoots of varying beliefs and degrees of power. Hmm. So one of these groups that was a direct offshoot of the Golden Dawn was the Rosicrucian Order of Alpha et Omega. I'm going to call it Alpha at Omega. Sure. Okay. Okay. (laughs) This group was still led by Samuel and Moina, and it was pretty much a carbon copy of the Golden Dawn. And it continued to gain members, build temples across England, and spread their teachings until Samuel's death in 1918, at which point Moina took over. Mm. It was in 1921 when Netta would be initiated into Alpha at Omega by Moina herself. Mm. Okay. And so this is, she's coming in from the... Science, arts, and crafts. Yeah. Into, which also, I didn't say this earlier, but that is a super fun name. I know. Science, arts, and crafts. Feels can like we go to science, arts, and crafts oh, okay. I, I want to go to that yeah. class. Like. I would like buy their shirts and stuff. <laughs> that sounds really cool. <laughs> oh, but yeah, so she goes from science, arts, and crafts into Alpha Ed Omega just by kind of like continued exploration. Yes, and, and the direction. word of mouth aspect of it too. Oh, sure. Okay. So like, we'll talk about the person who connected her later. Okay. Uh, But yeah, basically, hey, I think he would be a perfect fit for this specific Mm. society. Mm. Okay. So throughout her 20s, Netta spent time in these societies and was deeply involved with Alpha at Omega and another group called the Society of Inner Light. Mm. She adopted a pen name slash nickname during this time as well, which was Mac Tyler. Under that name, she published many writings in various occultic publications, exploring a wide range of pseudoscientific and metaphysical concepts. But it was the pseudonym she chose for herself that I think is more important. So Mac Tyler was a reference to a Scottish playwright by the name of Fiona MacLeod, which was also a pen name for a playwright named William Sharp. (laughs) He was also a member of the early stages of the Golden Dawn. Wow. So he'd written hmm. a play called The Immortal Hour, and Netta was absolutely obsessed with it. Written in 1899, the play ran at the Regents Theater, and Netta attended it roughly 23 times. Wow. She loved this yeah, play. Sounds like it. And every time she would go, she would soak in all of the imagery and the symbolism, like, fresh every time. Like, That's, she would always learn something new. Yeah. It's like reading your favorite book. Right. But in 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 that year... I can only imagine that that's like seeing like a huge world-renowned band, like going to see U2 or the Beatles. Right. 23 times. Right. That had to be pricey. I'm sure. I actually don't know if it was like a free thing or Mm. how it worked. That's a sidebar I did not go down. But either way, 23 times is a lot. Right. And even if, just for sake of argument, it wasn't like 
world famous, world class. That's mm-hmm. still going to 23 pretty significant events for mm-hmm. several hours out of your evening. Like that's that's a lot of time spent. So she obviously was really into it. Yes. As you're as you're making the case for. I'm just clarifying in like a modern kind of a context. Like totally. That's I haven't seen my favorite bands that many times. Right. That's crazy. It is. Well, and the play was kind of like a blend of romance and paganism. Mm-hmm. The Immortal Hour and the art created by painter John Duncan, a painter who was ripped out of his day-to-day life when he experienced the supernatural out of the blue. So it was their works that were really hmm. kind of moving and motivating and inspiring to Netta. Yeah. So while working as a butcher, Duncan dabbled in painting, and he claimed that while he painted, he could hear fairy music that he believed was coming to him from another realm. What? Yeah. So it's taking everything in me to not go on a side quest about the fae right now, <laughs> but because I want to do at least right. like a f- one full episode, yeah. possibly two parts on it. And it has come up several times yes. in the last 72 episodes, 71 I episodes. I know. I just need to do it, but I know it's going to like take me a long time. <laughs> yeah. So I need to like maybe just chip away at it. Yeah. But I'm going to save talking too much about the fae for a later date, but they are important to this story. Okay. So Duncan made it his mission to bring the sounds of the fae to life through his art. His push for Celtic revival at a time where Christianity was booming led him to create one of his most famous works, St. Bride, which depicts a woman being carried from the island of Iona to Bethlehem, symbolizing hmm. the decline of the Celtic belief system being replaced by Christianity. Hmm. Wow. So studying these works became a passion project for Netta. One super important common thread through the works of Duncan and Sharp was the emphasis on the island of Iona. Hmm. So I... Touched on it in the beginning, but Iona is a small isle off of the western coast of Scotland. It's only about a mile and a half wide and three miles long. And it's kind of like old school. Like hmm. even still, today it only has like one or two roads and like a pub and some farms. Oh, wow. And at the time there was pretty much nothing there apart from about 100 to 150 residents, mostly farmers, and vacation homes. Hmm. To wow. this day, just to get to Iona, you need to take several trains, a ferry, and a bus to get to the epicenter. For Hmm. centuries, Iona has been deeply steeped in mystery and superstition. While it was considered a hugely important location for the spread of Christianity, it also holds longstanding lore and mythology featuring various gods and creatures of old, and most importantly to this tale, elementals like the Fae. One of the most famous legends dates back more than 1,500 years when St. Columbo discovered a way to communicate with angels and possibly even fairies. And he had even claimed to have seen angelic figures coming down to him from heaven, surrounding him as he prayed. They blessed him before ascending back into the heavenly realms, and many cite this story and others like it for Iona's spiritual, like spiritually healing Hmm. properties. Interesting, yeah. The southwestern corner of Iona is also said to be the location of an ancient fairy mound where fae are said to inhabit and come and go from their world and into ours as they please. Wow. Due to the high level of activity, various occultic groups viewed Iona as a thin place, a place in the world. We talked about this in Bridgewater. Yes, yeah. So it's a place in the world where the veil between our physical world and the world of the supernatural and spiritual is said to be thinner. Mm Mm-hmm. Overall, people from all backgrounds, adhering to all kinds of worldviews, have long viewed Iona as a place to come, connect with their beliefs and with nature in a unique way, and get a full picture of what life in the Scottish Hebrides can be like. Hmm. Pilgrimage to the Isle has, for a very long time, been extremely important to the local economy. And so people like Netta, however strange their beliefs may have been, were the like most welcome travelers. Anybody hmm. coming for some type of spiritual experience. Yeah, yeah. Come on over to Iona. Yeah, they're very welcome and open to that. That's very, it's really interesting to think about like this essentially secluded aisle Mm -hmm. that (laughs) sounds like everybody knows about, Mm -hmm. but is still pretty secluded Mm -hmm. even still, which that's just really interesting to me. It's like, there's something really, to me, very refreshing about the idea of Iona, mm-hmm. and I'm not someone in Netta's shoes. Right. Just hearing what I what I have heard and reading what I've read about it. Yeah. It's and the fact that it's ancient, yeah. and like for so long it's been the subject of all of these kinds of conversations. You know. <laughs> yes. There's something very alluring mm-hmm. about it, and it's just beautiful. Like if I've seen pictures of it, like 
on the island and then pictures that people have taken like from the boats. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. That's really cool. And so yeah, it's it's a really cool place. I'm pretty sure I've seen pictures of it myself. Like you the probably name have. sounds really familiar. I wonder if it's one of the Apple TV moving background screensaver oh, it things. might be. I feel like it might be. But even if it's not, I'm sure I've seen it in some kind of a way like that. Because that mm-hmm. name just sounds so familiar. Yeah. Anyway. So Netta left her cultic groups in 1926 in order to fully focus her time and energy into her study of Iona and remained open to learning all she could about it and about the metaphysical elements that lived and breathed just out of sight. Hmm. She would go on to write as Mac Tyler, quote, There is a fourth class who sense the existence of a deeper meaning but are hopelessly baffled by their inability to interpret the intricate symbolism employed. It was for such seekers that this interpretation was written, and in the hope that these tentative suggestions, based on a study of comparative religion, folklore, mysticism, and symbolism, will provide them with the necessary clues, end quote. So she wrote that in the thick of her studies of Iona. And before long, she herself was so deeply committed to visiting the Isle, and over time she actually came to the belief that she had once lived on the Isle herself in a former life. Hmm. She was very attached to it yeah. through art, through reading, yeah. through her own writing. It was calling her name. Yeah, that makes sense. Where it feels like it feels like home. Mm-hmm. Yes. I get that. And also she's kind of got that like old soul spirit thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the middle of bustling London. That's loud. Yes. And if I'm going to hear fairy music, I'm certainly not going to hear it right. over <laughs> the London street noises, you right. know. Huh. In 1929, Netta and a female friend, many say it was her housekeeper, known only as Mrs. Varney, packed up their life in London in search of self-discovery and made their way to Iona. The two took a train to Scotland and journeyed by ferry to several islands in the area before finally landing on Iona. For their first few days, the two women set up shop in the home of a family known as the McDonald's before Netta sent Mrs. Varney back home so she could seek out a more permanent residence on the aisle. Hmm. I don't know if it was just like for practical reasons, like it'd probably be easier for me to find somewhere to stay more long-term if you had home. And also I think she was, Mrs. Varney was married. Okay. So (laughs) probably would be nice to go back to her husband. Right. (laughs) This led her to the front door of the Cameron family. And now we have a nice little full circle moment. Oh, yeah. When Netta arrived at their home with her bags, a typewriter, a writer's chair, and her whimsical explanation of why she was there to begin with, that she was looking for a place Mm -hmm. where she could continue studying telepathy and healing, the Camerons (laughs) were a bit taken aback, but ultimately decided to let her set up shop in the attic of their home. (laughs) The Camerons, made up of the parents Catherine and Donald and their three children, 21-year-old Catherine, 16-year-old Mary, and 12-year-old Callum, also welcomed longtime lodgers from time to time. Mm. It wasn't all the time. They were primarily a vacation guest house. Yeah. But they also did, like at the time that Netta arrived, she wasn't the only one looking for lodging. There was a 16-year-old named James Morrison also living with them. Oh, interesting. Okay. So they were pretty open to that kind of thing just in general. Yes, but she definitely was different than than what they were expecting, I suppose. Sure. Once she was settled in, she formed a routine that the Camerons thought was odd but harmless. She would stay up late into the night writing and would take midnight walks across the aisle. She would keep her curtains drawn and her oil lamp burning as there was no electricity on the aisle at the time. Hmm. So when she was asked why she was always in her room with the curtains drawn, she informed the Camerons that she could see the faces of the previous patients that she had healed when she looked up into the clouds. Hmm. Like she started saying some odd things. Yes. She could be seen sitting motionless on the shoreline, staring out to sea, or would remain locked in her room for hours, sometimes even days on end, frantically typing away. Hmm. Despite the several oddities about her behavior, the Camerons actually did enjoy Netta as a house guest, and they welcomed her strange stories. Like yeah. They actually were like very entertained by her, yeah. and they wanted to hear what she had to say, and she happily told them. Yeah. Well, she's one of those kinds of people that She's so artsy mm-hmm. that there's something compelling there, about yes, there's something compelling about it. There's something that makes you go, ah, yes, I understand. You're locking yourself away for several days at a time because mm-hmm. you're you're working on something. It's creative and it's outflowing from you, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's spiritual. Yes, also, and all it takes is a little bit of awareness to like let somebody do that, mm-hmm. like to say. Oh, yeah, that might be a little bit odd to me, but like, that's their thing. That's cool. Go do that. No big deal. Right. And then when they come and share with you 
what they're working on or just another fun artsy thing or just a story or whatever. Like if you just have that little bit of awareness, it's entertaining. It's enjoyable. It's something totally. that you're sharing together. There's a nice symbiosis here yeah. that I think happened on accident that I yeah. really love. That's really cool. Where it was like they were they were being kind mm-hmm. and they were being open to this strange little guest. Yeah. And she was just being herself. Yes. And, and they, they enjoyed it. They enjoyed yes, each other in they enjoyed that, way, that which is sweet. about her and they enjoyed her. And it seems like she enjoyed them. And mm-hmm. obviously, yeah, that's a really cool scenario. It is. Like you don't always lot. hear that. No. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. On the morning of Sunday, November 17, 1929, Netta came running from her room in a manic state, telling everyone that she saw a ship passing across the sky carrying a message from the spiritual realms. She ran back upstairs, haphazardly packed up some of her belongings, and went racing off towards the spot where the fairies would come in. But it was Sunday, and the fairies didn't run on Sunday, so she Mm. returned back to the house. And like, she would have known that. She knows the fairies don't come in on Sundays. Hmm. She made no more comments to the family about the ship or about her plans or thoughts on the spiritual or anything. She was totally calm and lucid as she joined everyone for dinner. Late at night, Netta quietly left the house for one of her usual walks, and the rest of the people in the house went to sleep. When Netta didn't join the group in the morning for breakfast, nobody was immediately concerned, but after a few hours, Mrs. Cameron made up a tray of food and brought it to the attic for Netta. Mm -hmm. But when she opened the door, the room was empty. Netta's belongings were there. Her oil lamp was burning, and there was still a small fire crackling in the fireplace, though. She's like Mm. a little bit strange. Yes. Mr. and Mrs. Cameron decided to go check and see if Netta could be found staring off into the horizon of the sea, as she often would, Mm -hmm. but she wasn't there either. Mm. They returned home and figured that this was just another one of Netta's little moments and that she'd come back when she was ready. But when the afternoon of Monday the 18th rolled in with still no sign of Netta, the family decided to set up a small search party in hopes of finding her safe and bringing her back to the home for some food and some rest. Mm. For the next several hours, a small search party scoured Iona for a sign of Netta who, based on the clothes left in her room, had been out in the elements without much to protect her body from the harsh November cold and the winds that whipped across the aisle. Yeah. Oh, man. She just was not prepared to be out. Right. And there was not really any evidence in her room that she meant to be gone for so long. Right. When it became too dark to see, the group retired for the night, agreeing to continue the search the following day. Mm -hmm. By mid-Tuesday afternoon, and with still no luck of finding Netta, the search party shrunk by a few members, Mm -hmm. since the group itself was made up mostly of farmers. Right, right. Like, we've got to get back to work. They've got to do, yeah. So two farmers who left the group to head back to take care of their farms were walking along the South Hills when they came across Netta's body. Oh. Yeah. She was nude, laying on her back, staring with her eyes wide open towards the sky. A coroner was quickly called in who noted that apart from a small handful of cat-like scratches across her body, she was uninjured, which led him to determining her official cause of death to be exposure to the elements. Oh, no. Which makes sense. I mean, it was very cold. Yeah. Like that time of year, it can get to freezing. Yeah. And she was also very underclothed and had been gone for two days. Oh, man. Yeah. So they couldn't from what I could find, they couldn't determine time of death. Sure. And his, the coroner's official ruling was a guess, Mm -hmm. but there was no sign of injury on her body at all, which is very strange. There's a scratches. It sounds like that's the only thing that would happen is just 
laying there until Mm -hmm. you die. Yeah, which is so miserable. Yeah. Though Netta's aunt and uncle were contacted about her death, the pair opted not to come and collect her remains. And so the people of Iona banded together to provide Netta with a proper burial. Hmm. She was buried in the graveyard of Kings on November 29th, 1929. The service was attended by folks from Iona, as well as several newspaper reporters from Scotland and Ireland. And while the reports on the young woman's death were pretty low-key at first, they quickly took on a life of their own, morphing the story from a tragic death of a mentally ill young woman due to exposure into a fantastical, mystical tale of the occult, of betrayal and Mm. revenge and creatures and all sorts of things. Oh, wow. Yeah, they went pretty wild. That's, wow, okay. So typically when you hear this story, an element gets left out. And I don't okay. think it's it's on purpose that it gets left out, hmm. but I think that people just don't know. Yeah, just over so, time, the legend goes a certain direction. Right. Okay. And okay. this is how it is being reported on. And so if you're looking at much of the resources available to learn this story, mm-hmm. you're going to see a lot of stuff that's just been kind of telephone gamed. Oh, sure. For the last hundred years, you yeah, know? Yeah. So none of the earliest reports really included anything occult related apart from Netta's personal interest in the subject mm-hmm. and like her own personal claims that she was telepathic and had healing powers. Sure. That was pretty much it. Once word got out that Netta had an interest in the occult and pagan mystical practices, new details emerged with varying levels of truth and credibility until this story became a terrifying shock piece that made its way around the world. Oh, Wow. I'm not going to talk too in-depth about the specific reports, like who wrote what on what date and that kind of thing, Uh, like from specific publications and all of that. But I can give you a pretty broad overview of how this story is typically talked about, how it was then, and and how it's typically talked about today. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So the legend essentially states that Netta, after disappearing while on one of her midnight walks, was discovered nude apart from a long black cloak. She was laying on her back with her face looking up to the sky her expression frozen in abject terror. Beneath Mm -hmm. her body, someone had carved out a cross into the earth beneath her with a knife that was found nearby, which there actually was evidence that someone, most likely Netta, had attempted to dig into the ground. Mm -hmm. But the assumption from the Camerons was that she was attempting to dig into the fairy mound as it was something that she talked about often because the southern, the, the part where her body was found is a place that's still sometimes called Fairy Hill. Okay. And that's believed to be where the fairy mound is. Oh, And so they think that she had dug some holes trying to get to the fairies. Wow. And it had just so happened to have a shape, I guess. Mm -hmm. They were very unmoved by the claims that there was a cross dug into the ground that she was laying in. Yeah. Okay. So there was also a knife found near her body, but it wasn't like a butcher knife or anything really sharp, but something closer to like a blunt butter knife, kitchen knife type thing. Yeah. Okay. Her layers of once silver jewelry all tarnished black also. It was all tarnished black. Very spooky. Mm. The scratches on her body came from an unknown source, but most likely were spiritual in nature. There were also several stories about the blue lights in the sky that were seen by residents near where Netta's body would be eventually discovered, as well as stories of a mysterious man in a black cloak seen wandering the island shortly before and after Netta's disappearance. Mm. With no verification. Yeah, yeah. That just that ever just, a, just a, a, a legend yes. at this point. Okay. Yes. So this part of the story is tricky for a lot of reasons. One, a lot of the original articles and documents have been lost to time. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty difficult to know when exactly the earliest reports were of like the stranger elements of the story. Mm-hmm. And two, as we've learned on this show, whenever there's even the faintest whiff of the unknown or unexplained, the imagination can run wild. Mm-hmm. Both of these things have definitely kind of fed into the legacy of this story and are at least partially to blame for the way that it spiraled in the last like 90 plus years. Yeah. And I don't really blame anyone for sharing this story, like in recent years for telling it with a mystical angle, because overall that's just how it's been passed down. Yeah. But in the book, Death on Iona by Ben Oakley, he goes in depth into this case and he spent a long time digging into as much of the verified history surrounding it. And so if you really are interested in this story, Go read Mm, that because not only did he do the digging, but he cites all of it. And it was really helpful for me in attempting to understand this story because it is kind of complicated to know what's true and what's not and all of that. Sure, yeah. 
So while the most likely scenario here is that the coroner's initial ruling was correct, I'm still going to talk about some of the theories that kind of popped up when people were trying hard to uncover the real truth Mm -hmm. of 33-year-old Netta Fenario's untimely demise. Yeah. Well, and I'll say this too, without knowing what you're about to tell us. Sure. Even with the coroner's explanation of how she died, it doesn't explain anything leading up to Right. how she died. Right. So It is a very mysterious death. Yes. There's room for people to uh, imagine a little bit of, and okay. Speculate and wonder yes, and try like, and make things fit. Right. So, like, I get it. Even if, you know, it's simple or maybe even, like, it's okay to just kind of have a little bit of, like, no one knows why, you know? Yeah. But with that being said, let's... Let's allow these theories right. <laughs> to live. Go for so it. So <laughs> I'm going to start. I'm just going to kind of spend most of this time camped in the stories that I don't think are okay. actually possible. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so in 1928, the year before she died, Nora took a trip to Egypt with her father, who gifted her with a handcrafted statue of the ancient god Osiris to commemorate their travels. According to legend, Netta had told her father that the statue gave her bad feelings and that she was concerned there was something evil attached to it, though there's no verification that this conversation ever took place. Mm -hmm. Some people believe that an ancient curse attached to Netta's statue was to blame for her death somehow. Hmm. Okay. I kind of feel like I don't really need to go into why this one is almost certainly not true in any way whatsoever. (laughs) Yeah. But people do believe that a curse of some kind is the true cause for her death for a couple of reasons. Uh, Another one that's discussed quite a bit is the number 33. People think Hmm. there's something to uncover about the number 33 in this story. Okay. Netta was 33 years old at the time of her death. Hmm. Her mother, Nora, was also 33 at the age of her death. I was just thinking that, yeah. And her father, Giuseppe, outlived her by 33 years. Oh. So while those are facts, Mm -hmm. and it is kind of strange, I don't really see how that's like evidence of anything. Right. At least in my opinion. But like, if anyone has any knowledge about how numbers or whatever could come into play here, like what the significance could be to the story that could explain her death. Like, mm-hmm. I'm all ears. You could sure. totally send us a message or comment on this episode. Yeah. But to me, I feel like it's just a kind of a creepy little coincidence. Right. And the numerology thing is, I think, really compelling for people, like, for a, a plethora of reasons. But it really only is compelling to people in stories that have to do with something witchcraftian or occultic occultic Mm -hmm. yeah like it's just it's just yeah that's just like a an interesting tidbit is like oh yeah you're starting to throw numbers out of things because because (laughs) like there's just that kind of a background to it sure so and i i get it especially if there's any truth to the occult stuff and Mm -hmm. you know all all that like then yes those numbers those numbers would be important right but there's already enough gray area, it sounds like, in the story. Right. It's like that just convolutes it a little bit more. Yeah, so. I agree. So another theory is that the blue lights in the sky were either extraterrestrial or the Fae themselves. Okay, I was about to say UFOs earlier yeah. when you first said it, and I'm glad I didn't, but I'm also a little bit annoyed at myself for not just jumping at it because— I believe you. That had been my theory, too. I believe you. <laughs> so the theory here is that she was either scared to death Mm. And just either had a heart attack, which is not going to generally cause bodily, like outward Mm, bodily injury. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Or perhaps Netta's spiritual self was taken into the fairy hill where she remains joyfully to this day. This one feels nice. That's a feel-good fact for, well, feel-good. Feel-good theory. Feel-good fable. There we go. (laughs) So you hear a theory like this one where she physically died in peace. And that one kind of for a lot of people feels Mm -hmm. like the best one to grab onto because it's the least like harsh and painful. Yeah. And so like, while I'd love to believe that Netta's wishes to join the Fae and to study them up close for the rest of her days were realized. I think it's a nice idea, but I just can't buy it for Mm -hmm. plenty of reasons. Sure. Sure. Personally. (laughs) And if you think that that's what it is, then great. You don't have to be sad about this story. Like I am. Yeah. Just going to say that. That's fair. (laughs) There was a lot of focus on Netta's occult involvement and esoteric beliefs. Mm-hmm. Based off of a statement given by Mrs. Varney, Netta had allegedly written her letter a couple of days before she died, where she explained that she was in a rough spot with an extremely complex and difficult healing that she was attending to. 
Hmm. Newspapers would go on to report that Netta was against doctors altogether, never mind the fact that her own father was a prominent doctor himself. This is a yeah. piece of the story that was reported on in the early stages and has held on through time and changes like through all the time and changes of the story. Mm, sure. Which I feel like is worth mentioning. Yeah. Like of all of the details that changed, that one didn't. Yeah. About the letter she wrote to Mrs. Varney. Hmm. And so, so that letter, it, it does or it does not have any verification. I believe it's verified. I mean, that's oh, okay. one that's reported. I don't know if there's any copies of it. Okay. Yeah. But that is something that has been reported on since the beginning. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. In December of 1929, a report cited this and went more in depth into her claims that she could heal and communicate with people across the world via telepathy. Mm -hmm. So much so that one report stated that at the time of her death, Giuseppe was overtaken with an intense anxiety that wouldn't let go, but made sense to him when he mm -hmm. received a telegram two days after her death, informing him of what had happened to her. It was the opinion of some of Netta's former colleagues in the occult that she had passed away during an episode of astral travel for one of several reasons. Oh. So this is going to get, I'm going to be jumping all over town here. <laughs> yes. Just so you know. So the first thought is that she potentially stayed in the astral realm too long, which caused her physical death. Hmm. Another is that she found the realm she had been in search of for so long and decided to stay there. Mm -hmm. And another one that's talked about a lot, even today, I would say almost especially today, is that Netta had become the victim of a psychic attack. Wow. So this is odd. I'm okay. just going to say that. Uh -huh. We could start uh -huh. there. This is a very, very wild theory, and I don't have a ton of knowledge about this particular subject. Yeah, that sounds so I'm gonna new to me. I'm going to do my best so. to explain it as simply as possible. Okay. So Netta had a friend named Dion Fortune, who she met at one of the science, arts, and crafts meetings and then eventually introduced her to alpha at omega okay yeah and so yeah on. yes so this, that this was the is friend that guy okay lady oh lady dion was a lady oh dion's a lady so they okay. met about 10 years before netta's death so before that dion had been a sort of protege for moina mathers the woman who took over leadership of the golden dawn and alpha at omega when her husband and co-founder mm -hmm. samuel had died from the flu right when Dion joined the group, she excelled through the basic tenets and developmental stages, which was exciting at first, but apparently it rocked the bow enough to create a divide between Dion and Moina. Hmm. Dion left the group and wrote a series of scathing articles that were published in the Occult Review publication, where she detailed the uglier side of secret societies that were rapidly gaining popularity at the time. Wow. This was at a time when you know, famous actors, authors, law enforcement, physicians, and people of all backgrounds and all levels of status were flocking to these societies. Yeah, wow. And so Dion's huh. articles contributed to a shrinking in memberships. Wow. It was a pretty big deal. That's crazy. She never named hmm. which group, but yeah. it, is a pretty, it was pretty obvious. People knew who she was in with. Right, yeah, okay. This allegedly infuriated Moina even more, and when Dion formed the Society of Inner Light— she formed that one. It started off going well for Dion and the group as a whole, but after a few months, Dion noted an uncontrollable uh, like wave of visions and also a dramatic shift in her mm. astral plane, which is apparently the place where practitioners retreat in order to fully practice their craft. Hmm. And you're like not supposed to blend it with your real life. It's supposed to be a totally separate plane wow. of reality. Yeah, okay. Okay. I cannot claim I understand this. I do not. <laughs> I I have a very basic yes. knowledge of this. Same. So like I know what you're talking about, but I don't know it in in great detail. So it got worse when terrifying creatures almost like demons began appearing in these random visions, and friends and colleagues and even neighbors would notice very foul-smelling black cats that seemed to flock to Dion in the real world. Hmm. Like even her neighbors reported on it. She believed that she was being attacked by Moina Mathers. All of this wow. allegedly culminated in some bizarre astral plane face-off between the two. And when Dion returned to her physical body, it was covered in cat-like scratches. Hmm. So the theory here is that Moina Mathers waited for Netta to go into her astral plane. She caught Netta off guard and attacked her, killing her physically in the process. Oh, wow. The motive would have been potentially revenge for leaving Alpha at Omega and joining Dion's group, The Inner Light. Dion claims that Netta's body showed all of the classic signs of a psychic attack. I'm going to say hmm. just right out front. Yeah. I, I don't believe this, but it's 
I mean, probably mostly due to ignorance. Sure. Like I can claim full ignorance. I would not that I would love to be compelled by a theory like this. Yeah. I'm just not. Sure. I'm just sure, not. Sure. It seems to me a little bit too fantastical, like too over the top to mm-hmm. be true. But this is one theory that many people have discussed over the years. Sure. Well, and I'm sure people who prescribe to that worldview would 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 totally believe that. Sure. Because they, they have all the prerequisites of a psychic battle in the astral plane. Like, well, like, fa- like basic foundational core tenets of this specific worldview, I have very minimal. Sure. <laughs> so, like, I that's why I said <laughs> yeah. I, I don't believe it, but it could just be because I'm ignorant. Sure. Can this sort of thing happen? I have no idea. Right. Never experienced it. <laughs> yeah. So, if anybody yeah. has crazy yeah. stories about that, also, please feel free to send us a message and tell us about it. Yeah. So wow. on top of being so over the top dramatic is the fact that Moina Mathers died in 1928, a full year before Netta's death on Iona. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know if that can be possible from yeah. beyond the grave. I have no idea. That I once have, again I do not know either. That's... I we're once again always the suspension of disbelief on yes. this show. It yes. reigns true. I will totally remain willing to hear somebody that can explain it better <laughs> if they if they have if they're yes. compelled by this theory yeah so. if they, and if they have the knowledge to say oh yeah uh in in alpha at omega we generally do believe that you can continue to astral project or to exist on the astral plane sure after your physical bodily death on earth sure. like they might and if they then that would be a prerequisite for that theory to live Right. There's just like, I'm just repeating you basically at this point, but I think it's still important just to clarify. Like yeah. there's a, there is enough uh, ignorance on our part to say if these things are true or at least believed by those people in that group, then the theory at least carries weight for them. Right. So it makes sense why it would continue to progress and live on. Right. So on the topic of Dion Fortune, she had this to say about Netta, and this is where I'm going to land the plane. Okay. Dion wrote about Netta in her 1930 book, Psychic Self-Defense. Quote, I knew Miss Frenario intimately, and at one time we did a good deal of work together, but some three years before her death, we went our separate ways and lost sight of each other. She was half Italian, half English, of unusual intellectual caliber, and was especially interested in the Green Ray elemental contacts. Too much interested in them for my peace of mind, and I became nervous and refused to cooperate with her. Hmm. I do not object to reasonable risks. In fact, one cannot expect to achieve anything worthwhile in life if one will not take risks. But it, it appeared to me that Mac, as we called her, was going into very deep waters, even when I knew her, and that there was certain to be trouble sooner or later. Hmm. She had evidently been on an astral expedition from which she never returned. She was not a good subject for such experiments, for she suffered from some defect of the pituitary body. Whether she was the victim of a psychic attack, whether she merely stopped out on the astral plane too long and her body, of poor vitality in any case, became chilled lying, thus exposed in midwinter, or whether she slipped into one of the elemental kingdoms that she loved, who shall say? Mm. The information at our disposal is insufficient for an opinion to be formed. The facts, however, cannot be questioned and remain to give skeptics food for thought, end quote. Hmm. So Dion mentioned a defect of the pituitary body, which at the time it was believed that a pituitary defect could be responsible for things such as anxiety, depression, and other mental health strains. Hmm. And I think she, however, intentionally was actually the most right when she alluded to there being a mental health struggle of some kind that Netta was suffering from. Hmm. Netta Frenaria was exceptionally smart and had a deep thirst for knowledge and for personal and spiritual development. She also endured several extremely traumatic life events, even from a very young age. And though she'd found some level of peace in like in her quest of learning, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was still a lot. Yes. You know, so much like the Cameron said as well, Netta's obsession with knowledge and Iona and the Fae and the spiritual realms took on a degree of frantic urgency shortly before her death. Sadly, in my opinion, the most likely scenario is that Netta had suffered from some sort of mental break while on the island. 
sitting mm. for hours and staring blankly at the sea. Her episode on Sunday before her death, where she panicked and tried to catch a ferry, despite the fact that she knew good and well that ferries didn't run on Sundays. The notes of mental struggles in her letters to Mrs. Varney. Mm. And apparently, investigators also uncovered stacks of very disturbing letters that Netta had written in the days leading up to her death. So there's no details really available on mm-hmm. what those letters are, but it does seem pretty evident that to everybody who was close to the situation that she was suffering greatly at yeah. the time. And on one of her night walks, maybe she got confused mm-hmm. and got lost and then succumbed to the harsh elements or that she possibly died due to exposure while trying to dig into the fairy mound, which is what Callum yeah. Cameron had yeah. actually told the newspapers. Mm. He's like, it, she could have grabbed a kitchen knife tried digging with it mm-hmm. and she was out there too long, exposed, nude, all that kind of stuff. Right. Right. You know, that, that is mm-hmm. fairly likely in my opinion. Yeah. All in all, it is a tragic story shrouded in mystery that has been passed around the world and back several times in the last nearly a hundred years. Despite her tragic death, Netta lived a life that she was proud of and her legacy has lived on even as the details of her death have morphed and changed over the years. And that is what I have for you today. Wow. Oh, man. I'm like, it's, it's, it's one of those stories that no matter what direction you take, like what, what theory you would subscribe to, mm-hmm. it's still not a, a really feel good story. No, not the, even. The best one being that she ended up getting to be with the fairies. With the fairies. And even still, it's like, that one is a little bit unsatisfying. Because it's like there's too much room for that to be like skeptic. You can be skeptical of it. So Mm -hmm. it's like you kind of end that story and you kind of go, well, bummer. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. That's kind of how it feels. Very compelling though. And there were, there's, there's a lot of things that I, you and I are going to probably talk about off mic that I'm just like curious that, um, would be too convoluted and too all over the place. Sure. To record. <laughs> yeah. So sorry, everybody. We have lots of fun conversations off mic. This is my confession of that. However, I will uh, point out just the, um, it feels strange to say this, but her story is almost poetic, you know? Yeah. It's, there's so much like, and, and uh, you kind of expect that out of a personality like, like hers, yeah. Is, right. Mm-hmm. That, like, of course, she would die kind of a poetic death because sure. she lived kind of a poetic life. Right. And tragic she, and poetic. Right. And she had such an interest in, in uh, literature and writing and art. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's, it's almost like the right ending of her story in a weird way. Yeah. I wish um, she would have had more years. Right. And I do get what you're saying. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> I would wonder if this is the way that she actually would have like, like loved to have been remembered is by some kind of really intense folklore and legend. I mean, for real. Yeah. But it's something that she was so passionate about. Mm-hmm. Cause like she, I breezed over how, like what she spent her time studying. Yeah. She didn't just study Duncan's work. She didn't just, go watch the immortal hour 23 times. Right. She didn't just analyze, you know, Sharp's other works. Right. She spent every moment mm-hmm. of her free time learning the arts, learning all of the various spiritual beliefs, learning all the folklore, yeah. all the mythology. Yeah. She was also raised partially to have an understanding of mythology and its function mm-hmm. just with her relationship with her dad. Right. All of that kind of stuff was super valuable to him and he yeah. passed that on to her. So it's like, It's amazing how she was so well-resourced that she could spend all of her time Mm -hmm. just exploring all of this stuff. For sure. Um, And that is certainly a blessing that she was afforded that not many people at the time or even still are afforded. But she used it to fill it with mysterious things and intriguing things and folklore and all these things. And that's the legacy of her life is also those things, which does feel very fitting for her. Yes. It is tragic, but it is also fitting. Right. I don't want to romanticize it, but at the same time, it does, it is an interesting element of the story. That's that's why I say it because it, it just is her 
whole life's work. And mm-hmm. so to become a legend, a folklore legend mm-hmm. is like, yeah, that's just so And it's poetic. like she's she's remembered as being on one hand, very unknowable and unsearchable, but mm-hmm. in so many ways, so relatable and so mm-hmm. knowable and yeah. so searchable, yeah. which is something that she was also passionate about. Yeah. So she and was just a really unique person. Here we are in yeah. 2023, almost a right. hundred years later, saying her name, right. telling her story. Right. You know, that's wow. That's something crazy. very remarkable about her just as a person. Yes. Yes. So anyway. Wow. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling and unsavory story today. If you have not already, please make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast on your favorite listening platform and that you leave a glowing five-star review or whatever the equivalent of five stars is on your platform. Those reviews help people who listen to other podcasts like this to find this one. So it's a great way to support this podcast. Also, make sure that you're following us on social media at this one is a doozy on Instagram and TikTok. This one's a doozy podcast on Facebook. And you can also connect with us over on Patreon. My love, why don't you tell them a little bit about Patreon? Yeah, so you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com slash doozypod. And for $5 a month, you can support our show. Uh, Everybody who subscribes over on Patreon will get access to all of our content Mm ad-free, as well as two bonus episodes each month that are exclusive only for Patreon members, Mm -hmm. as well as access to polls where we vote on things like episode topics and which organization we're going to support financially. That's right. All right. Well, with that, we'll see you next week for another doozy. Bye.